Please turn me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. Acts 2, 5 through 13. Remember, Acts is volume 2 of Luke's writings to a man named Theophilus. Volume 1 was the Gospel of Luke. Volume 2 is this, the book of Acts. Volume 1 focused on everything that Jesus began to do and teach. And Acts continues to tell us of Christ's teachings and actions through His people who were empowered by His Spirit. And so far we've been reminded of what took place in the first volume of the Gospel of Luke. We then saw Jesus ascend into heaven, an amazing event. And then we saw what the disciples were doing over the next ten days between His ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit who was promised to them shortly. What were they doing? They were praying and praising God together. They also replaced Judas with Matthias as an apostle. Finally, as we saw last time, the day of Pentecost came, and that's when the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit became a reality. His arrival was very dramatic, remember? He wants it to be clear that He, God the Spirit, has now arrived and He will indwell His people. God Almighty, God the Spirit will, and He will help and empower His people for ministry and service until they arrive safely into glory. And so he made it clear. Remember that? The loud wind, the divided tongues as of fire resting on each person, and then the speaking of unknown languages, all proof that he has now arrived. What happened after that? Let's look. Verses 5 through 13. And there were were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they're full of new wine. (laughs) Now, we're going to deal with that next week. (laughs) As we look at this, I think it's important that we again make a distinction between the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of of the Holy Spirit. See, the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens to all believers when they're saved, where the Holy Spirit places you into the body of Christ and resides in you until you arrive safely into glory. Normatively, the Holy Spirit is a gift given to all believers in Christ without exception, and no conditions are placed upon this gift. Also note that normatively, the Holy Spirit is given at the moment of salvation. And while that wasn't the case here in Acts chapter 2, where these believers were already saved and then the Holy Spirit baptized them and dwelt in them, we need to remember that the book of Acts is transitionary. And so what happened in Acts 2, and also in a few other places in Acts, isn't the norm for what happens to people today. What's normative now is that the moment that people are saved, that that's when the Holy Spirit baptizes them and permanently indwells them. This in contrast, this is in contrast to the filling of the Spirit. See, the baptism is positional, filling is practical. Baptism grants the power, filling turns it on. See, the filling of the Holy Spirit is a matter of yielding to the already present Spirit, 
so that he totally controls you. Every Christian already possesses the Holy Spirit, and now it's a question of whether you yield to his power or not. So for the Christian, the question isn't, have I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Of course you have if you're saved. The real question for the Christian now is, am I experiencing the filling of the Spirit who's already in me? Note that the word filled is talking about something that overpowers everything else. For example, in chapter 7, it says that Stephen was full of the faith. And even as he was being stoned, his faith in the Lord was a thing that overwhelmed him, filled. The Pharisees were filled with madness, and so madness was a thing that overpowered everything else. The Bible talks about being filled with love, which means that love is the thing that dominates you. In like manner, when you're filled with the Spirit of God, it means that you have yielded to the total dominance of the Spirit in your life. In Ephesians 5.18, the Apostle Paul says to literally be being kept filled with the Spirit. And so this is something that we are called to do, and it's something that can ebb and flow with sin or with obedience in your life, with hardness, or with yielding to Him in your life. Note that a parallel passage in Ephesians 5.18 is Colossians 3.16. But look, in Ephesians 5, it says, if you're filled with the Spirit, then you'll do this, and you'll do this, and you'll do this. But in Colossians 3, it gives the exact identical list, except it doesn't say, if you're filled with the Spirit, but it says, if the Word of Christ dwells in you richly. And so we find that To be filled with the Spirit means that you will let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does that mean? It means to be saturated in the Word with this truth that is powerful and living and active. And and you're obedient to it. You're, You're receptive to it. Now question, can you be filled with the Spirit and be weak in the Word of God? Can you be filled with the Spirit and be spurning the Word of God in your life? No. For the Spirit uses the means of the Word of God to do His mighty work in us and through us. So how then can I continually be filled with the Spirit who lives in me? Well, how about this? Sin less. That's one way. Repent quickly when you do sin. Immerse yourself in the Word of God and obey what it says. That then will be a vessel that the Spirit will fill to the brim and use mightily and powerfully for His glory, of course. Another way to say it is to simply yield to the Spirit, to constantly be yielding to the Spirit of God in your life. You say, well, am I supposed to do that all my life? Go on all my life just yielding, yielding, yielding to the Spirit? Yes. Yes. Through His Word and prayer and obedience, moment by moment by moment. John MacArthur said it like this, this shouldn't be a problem for you only live right now in this present moment anyway. You've never lived in the future. You you haven't lived in the past. You're stuck here. You might as well yield now. And don't get confused about the future. You won't get there. You'll worry about the sweet by and by and live in the nasty now and now. And it'll never be any different than that. Because now, what his point is this. This is the moment that you live. You live right now. And it's as simple as just yielding now. People say, oh, I can't live the Christian life for 80 or 90 years It's not that long. It's just as long as this moment of yieldedness to the Holy Spirit's control. I agree. Just focus on right now. Focus on today. So then what? Stay in the Word. Pray now. Battle sin now, moment by moment. Repent now if you need to. And keep going for the glory of God. The Holy Spirit loves to fill vessels like that. See, now. 
today, right now. Now look, while he, the Spirit, dwells within every true believer, he can be grieved. And his activity within us can be quenched. And that's when we don't experience the fullness of the Spirit's working and His full power in us and through us. And that's where I think many Christians, too many Christians reside. We harbor sin. We don't feast on the Word of God like we ought to. We, we dwell in mediocrity. No wonder we're so powerless. We tell the Spirit by our actions that we don't truly want His power or His help. See, sin, any harbored sin unforgiveness, anger, greed, lust, pride, lying, laziness, any old sin will hinder the filling of the Holy Spirit. But obedience to God is how the filling of the Spirit is maintained. And look, to obey Him, you have to know what He says. To obey Him, you have to be reminded of what He says regularly because we're prone to forget. Daily, moment by moment. To obey Him, you have to be rebuked by His Word regularly to get back on track. That all comes by the Word of God. So filling comes when we're immersed in the Word and when we do it more and more and more for His glory. And it's a daily battle, a daily thing that we pursue continually, moment by moment by moment. The question is, are you doing that? If not, you're going to be lacking in that filling, in that power to obey. Power to please Him. Power to glorify Him. Power to worship Him fully in your life as a living sacrifice. Look, because we're still in this flesh and because we regularly give way to sin in our lives, anybody? Is it just me? There, one more, right? Right? This is a, this is a reality. Um, it's impossible to be filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit all the time. Therefore, when we sin, every time we sin, we should immediately confess it to God. Do it right away and renew our commitment to being Spirit-filled and to being Spirit-led. Never quit in this. Never be content with being half-filled. Never stop pursuing being a spirit-filled man or woman until you die and you go to glory. And so we find that while since a transitionary time of Acts, every Christian is baptized with the Holy Spirit when they get saved, the filling of the Spirit is a daily, minute-by-minute, moment-by-moment pursuit of all those who love the Lord and want to please Him with the short time that we have left. Note also that this event here in Acts 2 is not normative for today, even though this same type of event happened in other places in Acts. See, the way the Spirit revealed Himself when He came to those 120 in the upper room that day, the day of Pentecost, it isn't something that we should expect to happen to us today. This was unique. And this miracle wasn't to become the pattern or the norm for all Christians for all time. Good point. You say, wrong, John. Because it happened more than once in Acts, so it's a pattern. Well, you done good saying that. Good job. Let's look at that for a few minutes. Turn over to Acts 8.14, if you will. Acts 8.14. Now, by this time in Acts chapter 8, the gospel is spread to Samaria. Remember Acts 1.8 said that once a spirit came, that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and then in Samaria. And by chapter 8, it's gotten there. Verse 14, Acts 8.14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had not fallen upon them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting. Remember how Jesus, remember how the Jews felt about the Samaritans? They hated them, right? 
they despised the Samaritans. Why? Because originally they were of pure Jewish lineage, but they gave in and they intermarried with the Gentiles, which to the Jews was a truly despicable and despised act. So much so that the Jews wouldn't even go through their country. They'd go way around to get to the other side. But look, the gospel is for all. And what we find is that after the believers got scattered, they went and spread the good news, and now some Samaritans believe on Christ as Lord and Savior. That's great news. But even with that, the tendency might be for the Jewish Christians to still make the Samaritans second-class Christians, if Christians at all. And so to ensure that that didn't happen, the Spirit of God allowed these Samaritans to be converted. But note this, at the moment of their conversion, they weren't in the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit wanted some very important Jews to be there when it happened so they would know that it happened to the Samaritans just like it happened to them. And so it wasn't until Peter and John went there that the Spirit came. Why? So Peter and John could come back and say to the Jewish believers, you'll never believe it. You'll never believe it. The Samaritans got the same thing that we got. And so the Spirit is making sure that everyone knows who the church is for and who He indwells. Not just Jewish believers, but Samaritan believers. And so he's bringing together the body. It doesn't say that uh, these Samaritans spoke in unknown languages, but I think they most likely did so that they would have the same undeniable sign that they had in Acts 2. But it doesn't say that. That's just speculation. It doesn't end there, though. Look at Acts 10.44. Acts 10.44. Now, at this point, Peter isn't talking to Jews anymore. No, he's talking... Uh, with Cornelius, who is a Gentile. Acts 10, 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many came, uh, as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. See what's happening? The Holy Spirit has now come to a Gentile. How do they know that that happened? Because they heard them miraculously speak with languages. See, as the church is being formed uh, in the flow of the book of Acts, the Spirit of God wants everybody to be sure that the church is for everyone who believes that the church is one body. And he goes to great lengths to make sure that everybody knows that fact. That's interesting. Because what's happening in these instances in Acts seems to be different from the languages that were given as a gift to some in the early church before the Word of God was completed as seen in 1 Corinthians. See, the tongues in Acts 2 and in, the, and in these other two, possibly three instances in Acts was given by the Spirit to show and to prove that the Holy Spirit is for everyone, every group, every believer, not just Jewish believers. And so they receive the same Holy Spirit in the same way in order to tie them in with the one body that was born at Pentecost. Now that's very unique. This happened three times for sure, possibly four, and it was for the purpose at that time, and it isn't something that we should expect to happen today. No need. But there was a need then during that transitionary time while the Word of God was being completed and while the foundation of the early church was being laid. Now from here, there was indeed a gift of tongues that was given by the Spirit to the early church to some, not to all, but to some. This sign gift was a real and intelligible language and it was for the purpose of communicating God's Word with a person of another language. 
We believe that this, along with the other sign gifts, such as interpretation of tongues, prophecy, and miracles, pertained to the apostolic era only. And that they served a purpose that was unique to establishing the early church, and that they therefore passed away once the Scriptures were completed. Why do we believe this? A few reasons. One, we believe the sign gifts have ceased because they're not around anymore. What we see today isn't what was going on in the book of Acts. In the New Testament, people with the gift of healing healed everyone. They drove illness out of the cities that they were in. This is not what we see happening today. The same is true for the other sign gifts. The tongues that we see going on today was not what was going on in Acts in the early church. Again, the tongues recorded in the book of Acts were languages unknown to the person speaking them. As the gift was displayed, the truth of God would go out to the hearers in their own languages so they could hear the good news of Christ. See, Babel isn't biblical tongues. Biblical tongues was a miracle that couldn't be denied, explained away, faked, or caused by emotion. Also, you didn't have to learn how to speak in tongues in Acts. No, it was a divine miracle given by the Lord. It doesn't mean that God can or doesn't do miracles today. God works mightily through the prayers of His people. We know that. And it doesn't mean that some missionary couldn't ever have this miraculous gift of tongues in the need of the moment. God can do anything God wants to do whenever God wants to do it. It simply means that these sign gifts today have passed away, and now normatively, God speaks differently, God works differently than He did when the apostles walked the earth and laid the foundation of the church in these areas. So, why did God give the sign gifts to the church in Acts? Because it was a world without the New Testament. The function of the sign gifts was to fulfill this purpose until the New Testament was completed. These gifts gifts authenticated the apostles and demonstrated to the world that they were the ones Jesus left in charge of His church until the New Testament arrived. Now there's one other instance of tongues in the book of Acts. For there's a little group of 12 Old Testament saints who, as one said, are hangovers from John the Baptist. See, these guys had been around for a while thinking that nothing's happened since the time of John the Baptist. I mean, they don't know what's been going on. Well, Paul ran into these guys in Acts chapter 19. And the Holy Spirit wants to get them incorporated into the church as well. They're true believers. Chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, passed through Ephesus. And finding some disciples said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? See, these are disciples of John the Baptist, and these guys don't fit either of the other two categories that we've already looked at. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, We've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And so he said to them, Into what were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. So Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Jesus Christ. Paul then evidently shared Christ with them. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke with other tongues and prophesied. And now virtually every group of believers during that transitionary and unique time is a part of the church with the Holy Spirit indwelling them. But look, once the body included all the leftover Old Testament saints and all the believing New Testament Jews and all the believing New Testament Gentiles, 
There wasn't any reason for this to occur anymore. For the Spirit has made it loud and clear that all true believers are now included into the body of Christ. And ever since that unique time, every soul that has come to Christ in saving faith is baptized and indwelt by the Spirit at the moment of salvation. No need uh, for the sound. No need for the tongues as of fire. No need for the languages. He just comes in and He indwells you. But in Acts, the Spirit does what He does very purposefully to show that all true believers are a part of the body of Christ and that all true believers have God the Spirit living in them and actually showing us what happened in this transitionary period. It's not the norm today, but it did indeed happen. That said, think about this. Wouldn't it be cool if the gift of tongues was still the norm for the church today? Come on. Wouldn't that be an incredible amazing thing i mean we went to myanmar and we had to have a translator to communicate it was a bummer a real bummer wouldn't it have been great if we didn't need that translator see the missionaries we support in myanmar and in lebanon have to spend years learning the language but wouldn't it be great if they could just miraculously speak the language albert barnes says clearly the gift of tongues is withdrawn The apostles, by that miracle, were empowered to speak other languages. That power must still be had if the gospel is to be preached, but now it requires the toil of many years to speak in foreign languages. It's now uh, to be obtained not by miracles, but by slow and careful study and toil. Men must labor for it. Bummer. But he's right. And if tongues still exists today as a normal practice, then, then why doesn't it exist for missionaries on the mission field as the norm? Instead, undoubtedly, the sign gifts have ceased. And, and what we have in Acts is unique for the early church as the Word of God was being completed and as the apostles laid the foundation of the church. And please note this, we're missing nothing. We're missing nothing today. We have the Spirit of God in our lives and His power is available to live for Christ, to honor Christ, to obey Christ, to glorify Christ. And isn't that what we were created to do? So, He's here for you. He lives in you. His power is here for you to honor Christ. And that's what we want. So, it was unique during this transitionary time and it was absolutely amazing. Note three truths that happened here in Acts 2. First, note that the multitude came together, verses 5 and 6. Remember what happened? There's a loud sound, this violent sound, and then you have the tongues as of fire resting on each person, all 120. And then they spoke in other languages. Well, the sound of all that brought the multitude of people together. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused uh, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So picture it. There's devout Jews from every nation under heaven dwelling in Jerusalem. Some interpret this to mean that these Jews were visiting pilgrims who flooded into the city for the Feast of Pentecost. Could have been, for sure. While others interpret this to mean that Uh, these were Jews living in Jerusalem who had previously lived in foreign lands but were now living in Jerusalem. But uh, it could have included both groups, and it probably did. The word translated dwelling doesn't denote either permanent or temporary residence, but that's not really the point anyhow. The point is that they were then present at Jerusalem at this time, either as visitors or as constant residents, representatives of every nation under heaven. Note that word devout. The word devout means cautious. That's interesting, isn't it? Cautious. Cautious about what? 
cautious about not offending God. So they feared God, they revered God, they, they want to honor God, but they, they need to hear the truth of Jesus Christ in order for them to be saved. See, now that Christ has come, died, and risen again, being devout doesn't mean a thing unless you've surrendered to him in saving repentant faith. He's a very devout Mormon. So what? Being a devout Mormon won't save your soul. Only Jesus, the true biblical Jesus, God the Son, can save your lost soul. He's a very devout Jew. So what? The Messiah has already come, and if you reject him, you reject eternal life. Uh, He's a very devout Buddhist. He prays all the time. He spends all his money and puts gold leaves on the Buddha as an act of worship, and he pours that water over that idol religiously. He's very devout. So what? Buddha hasn't saved anybody from eternal wrath. Only Jesus Christ can save you by grace through faith in him alone. And so these devout Jews from all over, they need to hear the truth. But look, God's going to give them the truth. He's going to give them the truth. And I believe that God has prepared their hearts. I believe God has brought them together here during Pentecost for a reason. I believe God's timing isn't just by accident, for this is how God works. So here they are, and they're ready. And look, a sound brings them together. What sound? Some say that it was different languages that were being spoken. That was the sound. It says that they came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in their own language. That sound. I don't think so. They heard the languages once they came together, but what was it that brought them together in the first place? Look at verse 2. The sound... From where? From heaven. Sound from heaven. See, there's no way they could have heard the sound of guys speaking other languages all over Jerusalem. But they sure could have heard the sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. See, at this time, the city of Jerusalem was about 425 acres or 0.7 square miles. And so a loud and violent sound from heaven would have gotten the city's attention. Hey, when we were there in March, there was a guy on a loudspeaker doing a Muslim prayer, and you could hear him from extremely far away, and it was incredibly annoying. But a loud sound from heaven in that city? Yeah, that would make people come out of their houses, out, out from where they were staying. That would wake them up. That would cause them to come together. What was that? What is that sound? Eventually the sound continued and so this multitude was able to go where the sound was centralized and now the 120 were gathered together in that upper room and they're now coming down into the courtyard below and they meet this multitude and there's now great confusion because they're hearing these guys speak their native languages. It's quite the scene. (laughs) Sound from heaven. And now all these guys are speaking these other languages. It's an amazing miracle so first the multitude came together and then second everyone was amazed rightly so i mean this was a shock so they were amazed and they marveled verse seven what's happening the holy spirit is making himself known see he has arrived and he wants everybody around to know it and this event utterly amazed the people i mean they were absolutely astounded Look, look how they responded. Look, are are not all these who speak Galileans? And that just added to their astonishment. Galilee was Hickville. Galilee, people from Galilee 
were uneducated, uninformed, and uncultured. And they were the country bumpkins when it came to the Jewish people. The Galileans even had an accent that gave them away and made them sound uneducated. As Nathaniel said to Philip in John 1.46, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Implied answer, no. Nazareth was one of the cities of Galilee. In John 7.52, the Jews found out that Jesus was from Galilee, and so they said, Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. Why not? Because nothing good comes out of Galilee. But now look, all of a sudden, all these unlearned, uneducated Galileans are speaking all these languages, and the people are absolutely dumbfounded. I mean, they don't have any idea how to explain what's going on. How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Well, uh, it's God. God is how, right? God is doing this. God can use Galileans to reach the world. God can use even you, even people like us, to reach the world. How is this happening? These guys are speaking the native tongue in which we were born, and these people are from all over. Luke points this out, naming these various places. And you were given a map, hopefully, when you came in, just to picture where these people came from. His purpose in giving the list stresses the fact that people from all over the known world were present for Christ to save and then to send back to their native lands as his servants in order to proclaim the message of the glorious gospel. Look, Parthenians and uh, Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the other uh, the parts of Libya uh, adjoining Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jew and proselyte, Cretans and Arabs. Luke mentions 15 nations moving from east to west, all of which had a considerable Jewish population. The Parthenians lived in what is now known as Iran. The Medes were the people of northwestern Iran. The Elamites occupied the rest of what is today Iran and also some parts of southern Iraq. Those dwelling in Mesopotamia consisted of those who lived between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. The word Mesopotamia literally means between rivers, Mesopotamia, which was Babylon to which they had been exiled centuries earlier. This is today modern Iraq. So these people in the crowd that day were from all over the area. They were also from Judea and Cappadocia. Judea is southern Israel, but many believe this term is used in the broader sense to describe the territory once controlled by David and by Solomon. So it's a whole region around Israel, a very large area. Cappadocia is to the north, which is Turkey today. Pontus today is also Turkey just below the Black Sea. Asia isn't the continent of Asia, but Asia Minor, which is to the north of Israel in modern-day Turkey and beyond. Phrygia and Pamphylia were next to each other in that same area. But look, this multitude also came from Egypt, parts of Libya, including Cyrene. Where's that? North Africa. Now, they wouldn't have had to travel super far to get to Jerusalem from North Africa, but Luke is showing us that people from all over the region who spoke numerous different languages were here on this day, and they were hearing the disciples speak their language. Luke then tells us that there were visitors from Rome, which was an empire at this time, and it covered the whole area along the Mediterranean Sea. And so we find that Jews and proselytes, which are non-Jews who have been converted to Judaism, they're all here in this multitude. From all over, even from Crete, which was an island 60 miles or so south of Greece. And then there were Arabs, 
those who came from the great Arab peninsula between the Red Sea and the Gulf. See what Luke's saying? They were all here in Jerusalem. They're all gathered together, all these people, Jews from every place. And it's a perfect time for the Spirit to do something absolutely amazing. Third truth to ponder, all these people heard the wonderful works of God. Verse 11 says this. We hear them speaking in our tongues the wonderful works of God. You know, I'll bet they could have gone all day and all night doing this, speaking the wonderful works of God. Don't you? I mean, our God is a God of wonderful deeds and works, is He not? Come on now. We could spend days just recounting the wonderful works of God And that's what the disciples were saying. That's what these Jews from all over were hearing in their own language. The wonderful works of God. And this clearly connected the miracle of what they were hearing and experiencing to God. See, the Holy Spirit knows what He's doing. He's bringing them together. He's preparing them. He's breaking down the barriers. He's making it clear that this is of God. And in a moment, which we're going to look at next week, Peter is going to get up and give them the gospel. Some say that the wonderful works of God that were being spoken was the gospel, but I don't think so. Not yet. That's coming. Peter's going to do that in just a second. But I think they were simply praising God for who he is and for what he's done, the God of Israel. And what devout Jew would deny that? God has done wonderful things. Who, what, what devout Jew would deny that? Yeah, they need to hear about Jesus, God the Son. Of course they do. And how He's the fulfillment of the law of the old. How He's the culmination of what everything that was previously revealed to them is now centered on Him, Him, Him. It's all about Christ. But the Holy Spirit is first breaking down any barriers and letting them know that what is about to come in Peter's sermon is indeed of God. And so they first heard the wonderful works of God coming from the mouths of these disciples. What would that mean? Well, it would begin at creation, right? And then it would just go from there. The wonderful works of God. This is a, this was a common practice for the Jews, and it should be a common practice for us today. Talking about recounting the wonderful works of God. God is good. God is amazing. God does mighty things. God does mighty things for us as people. Let me remind you of that. It's good to do this because we're easily sidetracked. Anybody? Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, doing wonders? No one. Good to remember. Psalm 26, 7. That I make known with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wonderful works. Psalm 40, verse 5. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works. That's right. Psalm 77, 11. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders. Psalm 78, 4. We will tell the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. Yeah, it's good to do this. And here at Pentecost, you have a whole lot of people just praising and glorifying God in the midst of this incredible miracle, which clearly connects the miracle to God. God is doing this. God is up uh, to something. So listen up, and especially listen when Peter gets up in just a little bit and preaches to you. See, They're telling the wonderful works of God, the greatness of God, the, the great things that God has done. That's good to do again. This is important. 
for God's people to do for the unparalleled, incomparable, unequaled, unrivaled greatness of God is extremely important in the life of the child of God. And recounting Him and recounting His greatness is good for us to do. If we truly saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't be so greedy and covetous. If we truly saw the greatness of God, our eyes wouldn't be so apt to stray after lustful images and thoughts. If we truly saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't get so sinfully angry. We wouldn't be so sinfully prideful. If we truly saw the greatness of God, we would redeem the time more than we do. If we truly saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't worry about our looks so much. No, we would be more focused on glorifying Him with a fading time that we have left. So it's good to recount the greatness of God, the mighty things that God has done for us. Look, our God is the sovereign Lord over all. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He created all of this with a word. He knows the end from the beginning. He's in control. He knows exactly what He's doing. Everything that he does is good and right. He never falters. He never wavers. He never sins. He is never wrong, not ever. He is perfectly holy and just. He is love. And at the same time, he will judge all sin because he is a righteous God. He flooded the earth, yet he also saved a remnant. He loves and preserves his people, people like us who are rebels. He fed millions in the wilderness for 40 years. Rebellious people. He is so holy that he must punish all sin, death. And yet look, he punished Jesus, God the Son, brutally and horribly so he wouldn't have to punish us, those who believe, those whom he has set his love on. Think of that. He smote his son so he could save you, his child. He forgives sinners like us. He redeems us who believe from the slave market of sin. We deserve hell. We get heaven. We deserve wrath. We get amazing grace. It's good for us to remember Him and what He's done and what He continues to do every day for us. Has He not been good to you? It's good to remember. Yeah, life is hard. So very hard sometimes. But God is good so very good. He walks with us through the pain. He sustains us. He gives us grace for the moment. He gives us a reason to live. He gives us a reason to die. He even turns trials and suffering into things that have eternal value. He works all this out, even the bad, for my eternal good. He forgives me continually. I deserve his wrath, but I get mercy. I get him. I'm a rebel, but he loves me. He sings over me, Zephaniah 3.7. Who am I? He rejoices over me, a rebel like me and you. He pulled us out of the miry clay of hell and he set our feet on the rock of eternal life. And look, we will soon end up in glory, eternal glory with him and with each other. He's done all this for us. And it's good to recount these things like they were doing here in Acts 2. Do you do that? You do that to each other here, to your family, to your children? God is good. God has done great things. God has done great things in our family, in our life, in this place. We've got to remind each other. It's good. It's important to do this. And I think these devout Jews were hearing all this. I think they're getting excited. Yeah! Amen! That's, that's all true! God is great. God is greatly to be praised. He's done great things. He's done great things for undeserving rebels. Yes! 
And now look, they get to hear about what God has done through Jesus. The end all of great things. When God and the, uh, when God the Son himself came down, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died on a cross as a sacrifice for his people and rose from the dead three days later, they need to hear this, the climax of the story that their religion had all been pointing to for so long. And guess what? Peter's going to now tell them. Their response, amazement. It's a common theme here. What, what could this mean? Well, Peter's going to tell him, and he's going to address the skeptics who are mocking, who mock them, saying they're full of new wine. We'll see that next week. It's an interesting argument, to say the least. I, I look forward to, to that. So here they are, amazed. They're perplexed. Perplexed means to be utterly at a loss, to be puzzled about what's going on here. They'll soon find out. But amazement at what's happening is the overall feeling. In verse 7, they're amazed and marveled. And then we see the word amazed again in verse 12. So amazement is the overall feeling of what's going on here, rightly so. See, God and what God is doing should amaze us. Are you amazed? Are you amazed? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how He could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. Do you feel that way? The Lord help us to be continually amazed at our good God. He saved our souls from wrath. He walks with us. He sustains us. He loves us more than we could ever think or imagine. And we have a great inheritance that awaits us and we deserve none of it. Lord help us to be amazed. Who are we to have a God like we have? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You're an amazing God and You do great things. You do great things for us. You have done great things and You continue to do great things. Lord, help us to be amazed. Help us to recount how amazing You are so that we never forget. So that our awe, our fear, our love for You is a growing awe, fear, and love, Lord. And I I pray that we would just uh, stand amazed. And that we would remind each other of how incredible you are. And uh, Lord, we thank you. We love you. Thank you for your spirit who lives in us and helps us with power to glorify you and arrive safely home. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We love you. May our love, amazement, knowledge, passion for you grow in light of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.